your leadership has to see your analysis in a way that they feel like they can be influenced and participate in it. Um, you cannot come to the table with a black box analysis that's full of complex mathematics that nobody can understand and nobody can see the key decision points off of. Welcome to Create New Futures, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author, and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders to explore how you can create a new future for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Joe Antons, director at Cisco, overseeing central revenue planning. Joe started at Cisco as intern, and many roles, and more than two decades later, he is thriving at Cisco. I initially met Joe in a series of leadership events I led with several Cisco teams. He brings a unique combination of analytical rigor and business acumen together with a huge big heart for people. Joe, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Aviv. Well, let's dive right in and let me first ask you, what did I miss in this introduction? <laughs> I think you captured uh, pretty well my history here. Uh, it's, for me, the last couple of decades uh, working in the Valley has been really interesting. And um, my path has not been one of uh, the technology itself, so much as the analysis and sitting within the supply chain domain. Uh, and over those two decades, I've gotten to participate in an exciting company um, and see sort of its lifespan from beginning to where we're at now as we went from an immature company to a, a very mature company um, in both our processes, our technology, and our place within the ecosystem within the Valley. So it's been an amazing run for myself. So let, let's uh, take it right there and, and ask you, compare where we are today, 2019, and compare that to, say, two decades ago. How is the Silicon Valley different today? You know, it's different in so many structural ways uh, that, that don't touch uh, directly on my work, per se, and that it's a much more global, um, uh, you know, extension beyond the Valley itself into the world domain, the talent domain globally. The technology has changed the situation where it's 24 by 7 availability, and teams are very cross-functional and dynamic. And 20 years ago, you could listen to uh, startups where people are talking in restaurants and discussing what they're doing, and there's a lot of energy there. And a lot of that has moved into the network and into um, you know, discussions across uh, WebEx technologies, as an example, um, where, where teams are really integrated, but they're integrated in a way that's a, sort of a virtual coffee shop. Uh, I think that's been a really important part of the transition. It's changed the nature of the way teams are formed. Um, the way we you know, so, sort of grow and develop talent uh, within the Valley itself. So I think that's been a really important transition. I think one of the things that's very different for me, I've, I've sat in analytical roles for most of my career. And early on, you know, as, you, as you're joining and thinking about where we were at in the 90s, um, where we were really looking at data availability, how to get data sets where they could be in the hands of the analysts. Uh, analysts could work within the domain of Excel, um, they could sit down and process data and try to run trends, get some basic sense of what data looks like over time. What does your revenue look like? Who are you selling to? Uh, how much is going out the back door? You know, where, where are your inventory positions? Um, those types of analysis that you would do. And it was a lot of time series with maybe a little bit of statistical analysis done on top of it. As, as we progressed over time, you know, within the first 10 years, uh, we began to think of things in terms of single sources of truth. Uh, there were conflicts that would occur where I might be running a set of data, another individual runs a set of data, and questions of metadata started to introduce themselves. When did you take this snapshot? Uh, what hierarchy did you use or what adjustments might you have applied um, as, you, as you thought about that data? Uh, what was your data source? What was the ETL that you ran across the data in order to transform it? And all of those questions were not core to the business itself, but they were essential to getting a question, what did one analyst come with one answer and another come with another? 
think those are really important uh, domain transitions. And what's occurring now is we're beginning to transition even beyond uh, SSOT conversations. I was, I was in a review the other day where we were talking through our goals and objectives for the year, and we were talking about how to get our systems aligned to single sources of truth. And we realized we've gone beyond questions of metadata to what I think of as more or less meta-analysis. Uh, and to begin to look at, um, instead of single sources of truth, single models of understanding. Let's just slow this down a little bit and offer, please, a, a clear distinction of what you mean by metadata to, to meta-analysis. Yeah, I, think, I think as we transitioned and we had a massive set of analysts beginning to run data and think about how a company was performing, we realized that there were the underlying data itself was disconnected or unstructured in a way that required you to think of those questions of metadata. So not just the data itself, but the conditions under which that data was created, um, what database it was stored under. If you have many, many different uh, either ERP systems or um, data modules themselves, servers that you, instances that you were carrying the data on, they might have been in conflict with each other and disagreed for reasons that were not necessarily related to what a business analyst would be concerned about, but reasons that were more structural within the data themselves. And a lot of the technology in the Valley was, was designed to think about speed of extraction, um, how to quickly create those data tables, um, how to do you know, the underlying data design and architecture itself. That was a lot of the journey that was going on over you know the ten years I would say in the in the 2000 and 2010 timeframe. Now, when you begin to think of things like meta analysis, and and I think this ties to a lot of the technology that the that the valley is beginning to take a look at. There's information now that becomes about the business again that is not stored and archived and shareable. Uh, you know, when I when I looked through, we had a an internal discussion where we were talking about a demand signal. And when you begin to look beyond just not just when was a signal created or what was the snapshot or what system was it created in those metadata type questions, and you begin to look a little bit further into, uh, you know, I took it at a very simple level. Um, if I was to say that I have thousands and thousands of product IDs, you know, within a within an Excel table, and maybe 52 weeks of uh, dates that I've supplied that I'm going to run that signal over. And I filled it with a bunch of numbers. That to me looks like a work product. But what's really important to think about is what that represents when you send it downstream and say, this is my demand signal. Because basic questions of, do you mean this is what you're going to book by week? Do you mean that this is what you're going to build? Is this what you're going to ship? Um, as you begin to think about those questions of, is this the beginning of a week or the end of a week? And how are my partners going to use this downstream? Are they using this to negotiate? Are they trying to negotiate supplier agreements, long-term agreements? Are they trying to negotiate supply availability? Are they estimating build capacity, factory capacity? All those questions are quite complex. And you start off with a basic assumption that everyone knows what they're talking about. And you've just got to propagate the signal downstream and make sure that everyone's absorbing it. Uh, but it's actually quite complex, and the kind of information that you're sharing in that is dynamic, and it's, an inf it, it, it's best when it's an information exchange. I'm asking you for capacity, and you're confirming that you've gotten it for me. Right. Those kinds of questions require exchange, and that is a very complex thing to construct in tools and systems and processes, and I think that's really where we're at right now. Yeah. Yeah, great. And you took us all the way right to the deep end. <laughs> First thing, which is great. Um, um, let, me, let me circle back to data in, in a minute, but actually take a step back and, and ask you, you may have already answered that question, but I'll ask it nevertheless. Of all the things you do at work, what do you enjoy the most? You know, I... When I think about what I do, uh, in a lot of ways, it's it's like playing a game, and it's playing a game with a with a team that I really enjoy working with and developing, um, and I love that about what I do. And and when I describe it as a game, what I think of is um, almost in any strategy game you're using. You know, think of chess as an example. You have resources, you have pieces, and you have a set of rules that you can apply. And you have a tension that exists between you and the outside world. In that case, it happens to be a competitive player. But in the world, it's all kinds of unknown um, variables that you're going to have to deal with and that are going to come at you. And what I love best about analysis, both in the supply chain environment and, and more broadly, is 
um, looking at the available resources, the available rules, and really thinking about what will the future look like and how will these different pieces play out? Uh, what, what challenges will we face and how do we think about all our resources aligned in, in a strategically coherent way to achieve a goal? And I find that that is a, um, that is a really complex thing to do. It's a hard thing to train people to do. It's a hard thing for a team to execute well. And uh, I find that challenge very exciting. Were you strategically approaching your career knowing that you wanted to stay in Cisco in one company for, for uh, such a long time? Because there are people who like the idea of having experiences in different companies, in different ecosystems. I've heard from people who describe the benefits of both sides of the equation. So give me your perspective. What, what are the benefits of working in the same company for many years? And what have you learned because you've been able to watch, as you said, uh, Cisco evolve from an immature company to now a, a very mature company? Give me some comments on that. You know, it's funny. When I, um, when I started, I remember uh, John Chambers was the CEO at the time. And he had an all hands where uh, he brought in everybody in and we you know, were discussing the quarter and where we were at and the vision for the future. And he asked that question. He said, the average time span in the Valley in a company is four years. And he wanted a sense of how many people thought that they would finish their career at Cisco. This was still very early on in our life cycle. And for sure, I did not raise my hand. I was very early in my career and I had no expectation of where I would be in the next you know, four to six years. Uh, so it's funny for me now when I look um, two decades past, lots of hands went up in that room, and I would I would guess that uh, many of them are no longer here. Uh, so it's it's a long and, and exciting journey for me to to still be at the company. But if I looked at um, if I looked at the advantages of, and and why I stayed, uh, so much of the growth that we had early on, there were emotional reasons to be connected to the company. We were like family, and we were achieving something amazing. Uh, we were truly connecting the world, and we had that sense that uh, that Chambers offered us of, you know, having a place that we, you know that we could create where the we could change the way the world worked, lived, played, and learned. Uh, and it was an amazing time. There were a lot of close friendships, and there were definitely a lot of reasons to stay at the at the beginning. But as time went by, one of the things I find as a leader, and that I've continually enjoyed, is that my ability to imprint. Um, and change the company and its structure was really high, and it got higher as time went by. And one of the reasons for that, especially as you look at the world um, from an analytical perspective, is the most challenging thing about analytical work is you need to not only understand how the systems work, how to model the human system and interaction, but you need to know how to make that analysis become usable and, and absorbable by an organization. And almost any intelligence or analytical function um, it can can stall or bog down if the leaders themselves don't understand what they're hearing and you don't know how to persuade them when what you're saying really matters and when it's everything's generally good. Uh, so that back and forth really requires a trust and an ability to know where the leverage points are in an organization. To, you know, I, I think of it as the difference between in a brain, you can do all the thinking that you want, but if you don't have the spinal column that attaches you to the body, you don't really have the power to influence anything. Yeah. And, and that's a really important part of analysis. Yes. So what would be an example of that sense of, of making an imprint and, and impacting such a, a large company, whether you can... Uh, give a, a for instance of that, both in terms of, of something specific, if you can talk to, to, to that, but also then the, the feeling, the experience of how that lands with you. Yeah, I'll try to use, I'll try to use a, a generalizable example that, uh, that won't be too specific. Uh, one of the challenges I had um, with the revenue planning operation I have early on, when I came in, our ability to understand what our factory capabilities were and what our output would be given whatever the sales plan would be was really important. And uh, it, it was quite challenging for a lot of different reasons. And there were, you know, there's, there's a need to be able to make an articulated plan externally, um, but there's also a need to, uh, to really be able to articulate the internal needs, both from a supply capability, from capacity perspective, and to look far into the future. Uh, to be able to look multiple years and at least have a firm grip on what's happening within a, a rolling year's window. Uh, and those 
the dynamics of understanding what that sales plan will look like and how it will materialize for a factory and the decisions that factory will need to make are really quite difficult. And it's easy at the beginning to simply be trend-based, to just try to look and try to assume some level of rate of growth and continue to acquire um, supplies and capacity um, and to estimate your capabilities based on that trend. Um, but as it turns out, there's a lot of factors in the company, especially as you go through different business transitions as we have where we, we shift business models um, or you have changing conditions within the supply base itself. Um, there are a lot of drivers to that. And one of the things that was really important early on is that we disconnect ourselves from the idea that um, a simple historical time series trend will tell you where your future is going, right. that, that the past is perfectly predictive. And we needed the power to be able to begin to look at the underlying drivers. Um, when did the customers want orders was a really important uh, open question. What was our actual supply availability going to be um, in any given quarter? Um, what were the mix of products going to be and what would that look like and what key constraints there are? Modeling that and beginning to break down those numbers beyond just a trend into what are the five, six really important variables that are understandable by the organization that can be modeled and truly predictive and then can lead directly to a decision. Those were the key things. If right. I was going to end up with a bad result, could I change things now that would make that go away? Right. So, so this is one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you in that in the number of sessions where you participated with me, you impressed me in this unique ability to frame issues in a succinct way and anchor the conversation on data and on the business impact. And you, you now framed at the beginning of this discussion the, the idea of not just meta uh, data, but meta an analysis. So let's talk about this for a minute and, and again circle back to, to data because it sounds obvious, but it's not obvious at all. And define for me, please, what is the ability or the competence to lead a data-guided, data-grounded conversation? And why is it so difficult for so many? Because there are only few managers who seem to be doing that very well. Yeah, I, it's, a, it's an interesting one as I think about the full, the full range of things you really need to do to be successful in managing a data-driven conversation. And one of them that I think is really important is understanding the, the, that brain-to-body connection. Where are the leverage points in an organization? Where do things actually happen? What, are the, what is the actual fulcrum within the organization where a decision is made? And, and how do you get to an understanding of where those you know, handful, five or six decisions are made? So if I was describe the more general environment of how to, how to be competent that, one is um, your leadership has to see your analysis in a way that they feel like they can be influenced and participate in it. Um, you cannot come to the table with a black box analysis that's full of complex mathematics that nobody can understand and nobody can see the key decision points off of. Uh, that's a really important uh, challenge in the overall process of doing data analysis. Uh, you have to connect yourself to the actual decision-making process and the top of mind that, that the leadership itself would be in tune to. What are the sales rates of growth? Um, what are the different business segments doing? Um, how do you tie yourself to the external numbers and what that's going to look like? You have to be specific and precise with the numbers that they're facing in the business decisions that they're really responsible for. And then make the thing, make the entire analysis look like a set of choices. Right. And I think that's extremely important. Uh, I think that the second piece of that is, again, that brain-to-body connection. You have to understand, once you've done that analysis and you've made that choice, it can't be disconnected from what actually happens then after the fact. Your analysis has to actually be generally accurate. And, and as, I've, as I've walked through with teams, it also has to be accurate in showing the trade-offs. So an example is, if bookings or sales projections beat by 10%, your factory capacity needs to beat by 10%. If it misses by 10%, your factory capacity needs to miss by 10%. Those things have to be tied perfectly to show that the trade-offs were actually relevant. It can't be filled with um, buffer or fluff in the analysis that makes it look like the choices were actually irrelevant, that the outcome was going to happen anyway. 
And that requires both that you not pad your analysis and that your analysis be accurate, that you know the six or seven choices that lead to the outcomes that you want. And then you can be precise and prescriptive on that. And that's actually quite difficult. It's also very important for an analyst to build currency by being transparent when the analysis has failed and to be able to show where it broke and what you're doing to fix it. And that the tendency and the instinct is to be protective and to use explanation after the fact. And it actually destroys your currency as an analyst. You only have your facts and your ability to partner with transparency with your leadership in order to really build a good partnership. So this is interesting because the, there is the cerebral analytical connecting the dots and bringing to the table business acumen, but then there is who you are as a person, who you are as a leader, and how do you preserve your currency by building that um, transparency that, that's never defensive of, of, of the data itself, but rather is, is as transparent as can be. The, exactly. The other thing in what you're describing which, which um, I have seen to, to be fascinating is that even in companies where for several years there has been a major effort to wire people into outcome-based thinking, I find that time and again people struggle to indeed ground their thinking in outcomes or they do it superficially. And as a result, I've seen that people often mix inputs and outcomes and or confuse organizational outcomes for business outcomes. And the fact is that each of these three are important. I'd, I'd offer a, a quick definition to, to the three, and let's see if you, you propose any way to redefine these. I'd say that inputs are the resources that we allocate and the activities we generate to produce outcomes. And organizational outcomes are the results we produce internally in our own organization that enable us to sustainably meet our commitments to clients and to, to stakeholders. But then business outcomes include what we deliver to clients and the, the financial results, the, the market share results that we produce and, and so on. So somehow the, the clarity of thought and the, the clarity of alignment and how these three interrelate, I find to be critical but again, more often than not, when, when I ask people to describe what it is they do and what are the outcomes they, they hope to produce, they speak about these three interchangeably. This was one of those moments in, in more than one session where you stood up and, <laughs> and you, you brought clarity to the conversation by actually delineating what was what. Yeah, I think I think those three distinctions are really important, and I think there's, there's probably a, some degree of an emotional reason why um, people tend to confuse them. I think everyone knows intuitively that they want to be focused on outcomes, that uh, you want to be able to say, you know, if I'm in a planning environment in a supply chain, I want to be able to commit to cost outcomes. I want to be able to commit to delivery uh, outcomes for the customer. I want to deliver the revenue plan. I want to deliver high quality. Those are the kinds of things I know I should be grounded in. But what happens is in most organizational paradigms, the, the actual things you control are a subset of that. And you, most of the outcomes that you have to impact require a cross-functional relationship. And the desire to make commitments that, that you have any dependency on another group is really low. And the desire to commit to things you feel like you can actually control or with certainty attain it, you just have an emotional connection to that as an organization, and it's hard to walk away from measuring yourselves on things you know you know how to do. And I think one of the challenges in being successful at being uh, at operating in a data analytical environment where you're actually making real and sincere commitments is that you frequently have to make commitments that tie you to other people. And you have to th begin to think of yourselves, I think of it in algebraic terms of the, you know, the dependent and the independent variables. I know that I've got things that I have an independence on that I can execute, but I know that I have an extreme amount of dependency. And I have to get really good at calling that out and calling out when I see a change in my environment, when a partner is, is falling down early in, in time enough to be able to react and change the direction. And that requires that I be really precise in my handoffs, that I build really good cross-functional relationships that I built joint products in terms of analysis and that we deliver joint products as a company. That's the hardest thing to do. And it's way easier in an analytical environment to stick with what you know you have competency at 
than it is to stretch yourself beyond that. And I think that's why the instinct is so high to obscure those three things. That's, that's a fascinating analysis of, of why these three are still so foggy. You essentially, you're saying that they require uh, such a high level of cross-functional collaboration and agreement and, and you have to, to achieve, first of all, these are very difficult to achieve and secondly, you'd have to surrender some of the, con- or large, to a large degree, the, the control of those issues you, you're driving to achieve. Let me offer not a conflicting view of the issue, but from another angle that I think just tells the story in a, in a different way, which is I'd say that there are three levels of consciousness in the workplace. The first is, is what I would call a, a structure focus. This is the mindset where people define who they are by, the, by their title. If they lead a certain function, that's who they are at work. The second focus is the work focus, not the structure focus. So this is the mindset where people define themselves by the activities that they are they're busy with every day and, and every week of the year. And the third is, is that holy grail we are talking about, which is the value focus where the mindset is one where people define themselves by the value they contribute. And the way I look at the problem and the issue is we are largely still in, in large companies, even today, we're dealing with the hangover of the industrial mindset. In the industrial mindset, we were driven by that structure focus or even work focus. I was either my title or what it, what it was that I was doing every day. And you're actually, in what you're describing, asking people to elevate to a whole different way of appreciating themselves and each other and the workflow. You're asking people to define themselves by the value, the outcomes they create. And what you're describing is it, that requires you to work cross-functionally and align and agree on, on a whole range of variables that only some of, of uh, which you can control. Yeah, I, I do think that's really important. Um, when you look at it through that dimension of, of the way people define their role and they think about their role, um, even from an analytical perspective, your, your ability to be ingrained in a measuring process that you've already existed within and to call your job the same year in and year out is really high. It's hard to ask people to operate in the context of that centralized plan. So when you say when you were title-based and and we have leadership defining objectives, there are aspects of that centralized leadership objective that have to be respected and understood. There is an aggregate strategy that you are executing to. When you look at the intermediate layers, though, what you, you can operate at a lower level of performance, which is just I keep doing what I'm doing and I keep executing the instructions that I'm executing. And I allow all the strategy variation to occur at the most senior levels of the organization. But when you're operating in a, in a, what I would say an optimal way and, and a data rich way is when opportunities that are recognized at lower levels in the corporation, but are still tethered to the aggregate goals are realized. Those teams have to be empowered to change and transform themselves dynamically. And what you have to do is at the beginning and end of that, of the outcome that you're trying to deliver and at the leadership at the top end, the leadership has to make those outcomes so clear, but so simple that everybody's on the same page and then is trained over and over again how to sort of deviate from the plan in order to achieve the objective. So if you're, if your focus is on making sure you've executed the instructions of the leadership, that's different than making your focus the execution of the outcome at the other end. And you have to know how to weight those correctly if you're sitting in the middle of that. If, however, you believe that the only thing you're supposed to do is execute measurements and keep doing what you were told, you miss opportunities and you don't optimize for the outcome at the other end. I actually think, you know, when, when you talked about um, Cisco as a culture and one of the reasons to stay here, I think it's something we've been particularly effective at um, over the course of the years. And there's a part of me that thinks it came up through our environment of acquisitions and bolting teams on. There was a there was a dynamic nature to team formation that was extremely important to our success. Uh, and so I continue to look to that example from earlier in my career, how you form teams, but how you train personnel as well. That you should look to, um, you should look to deviate. You should look to deviate for optimal reasons. 
think I've instructed multiple people um, in the past that if you want to be promoted, you need to look at me right now as you're, as I can see the thought forming on your head that you disagree with me and be prepared to tell me that and be prepared to tell me in the context of our plan why that's true. Mm-hmm. And it does require a lot of training and continuous reinforcement to a team that the goal is more important than the structure. Right. And you have to reorient the goal. You have to reorient the structure constantly to the goal. You're also describing there uh, a future state or, or a current state, if, if, if that is in, with, with your team, where the, there is a courageous culture and, and a culture that, that uh, enables both ways. People have a line of sight to the outcome, but then in the reverse way, people are truly much more empowered to make decisions and drive an agenda that could be escalated all the way up because of, of the business impact that, that they realize can be created as a result of that change of strategy or, or, or change of even a decision that was already agreed to. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really important. And a lot of, for us, when we look at the analysis and we generate an analytical work product and we begin to look at trade-offs and how does the, you know, how do I turn this into an algebraic equation? How do I turn it into trade-offs between different variables? Um, what we do on that is rather than having that just be work product that gets fed up and everybody checks the box that it was seen, we actually almost train on that data constantly. We look at the data, we look at what it's telling us, we, we ask questions of it, we say, what if this happens or what if that happens? We're scenario modeling all the time. Because while we're having that conversation, it's designed from the most junior members to the most senior members of the team to have them see the trade-offs and the decisions that would be made to get in the mind of the senior leadership of how this might appear to them and what, what personal motivation they may have that will be impacted by this. And to constantly, constantly go through that so that when the team sees something and, and all the time my team comes to me with analysis that's surprising with insights that are not ones that obviously I have the time or the capability to generate on my own. I want those surprises all the time. I want the team to be able to look through that, whether it's the data structure or the metadata or, you know, the, the sources themselves or the analysis itself or how partner teams are reacting to it. They come with surprising conclusions all the time that later then become installed in the basic models in organizational relationships that we develop. Uh, and that's important for me. That's the whole currency as a leader in an analytical environment is uh, that your team itself produces insights. And the more that you can do it at a junior level, you know, the more ROI you get out of your own people. You get, you get surprise and you get constant surprise at the most junior levels of the organization to the most senior. Um, that's extremely rewarding, but it causes a lot more success in an analytical organization. I can see why, you, why you're saying that you get up every morning and you go to work, but actually you're showing up to play a game. It, it certainly sounds like yeah. that. Yeah, it is, it is a little bit like that. I probably shaped my role to be a little bit that way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's trace to, to the beginning of uh, your journey. What inspired you when you were growing up? You know, actually, uh, it's, it's funny as we talk about the, the, the games themselves. I think uh, as, a, as a child, I really enjoyed it. My father um, was in the military, and uh, I spent a lot of time, you know, in, in an environment where I would play strategy games and war games and, and uh, you know, progressions of resource deployment, uh, you know, uh, multi-turn, multi-round environment and thinking ahead. I really enjoyed that. I, I enjoyed the, the history um, that surrounded that. I enjoyed the strategy and the thought processes. Uh, and then at some point, you know, my love of history emerged with the love of economics. I had, uh, I had a, there was a book that I read, a series of books by Isaac Asimov that were around, uh, you know, it was a whole science fiction view of the world as mathematically predictable and uh, the ability to, to look at the history of the world as a system of equations and to think about how you might influence that. And as I went into college, that, that book and that, um, that thought process really stuck with me. And as I took calculus and economics, I began to see where all those ideas had come from, what was the origin of them. And it really connected for me and ultimately led um, uh, to my career. And what I would think of as demand and supply forecasting is really, uh, you know, extrapolations of, of economic theory. Uh, and it was, so it was a really exciting journey for me as something that was a hobby and something that I did in the background became 
um, the focal point of what my career would become later on and my ability to shape my career to the kind of job that I would want around the things that were interesting to me. Just everything kind of unfolded in a way that was, uh, was uh, both intellectually and emotionally pleasing. So let's uh, slow down just this one just a little bit because I'm, I'm very interested in the journey of uh, self-discovery in terms of where and how are you discovering what it is that you're good at and at what point do you actually even tell yourself, yeah, I think this is, <laughs> this is what I'm here to do. I'm going to be uh, doing this well. I'm going to excel here. Take me through this thought process. Is there a particular moment where you said, yeah, this is what I'm here to do? You know, I, uh, um, there's a moment that sticks out in my head when I think of, of my career here and then ultimately what led to my planning career. And it wasn't uh, what I'd call a success. It was just a moment of insight. Uh, and there was a leader in our organization that at the time we had a particular metric that we were focused on sort of maniacally, um, which was whether we delivered on time uh, to the commitments that we had made to our customers. And as a planner, I led that, that conversation within an extended cross-functional team because the idea was that the plan I had loaded, if we executed to it, it should have yielded a pretty good performance. And if the plan was flawed, um, then there were reasons why that could break down. And so I found myself at a, at a session one day um, where the leader, he stopped a presentation before mine, just before mine, and indicated uh, you know, that we'd gone through this rigorous training on Pareto analysis and how to look at a time series trend and to say that when there's six data points, they're stable, the system's in control. And he basically said that that team just got up like every other team before it and presented to me results which are bad. And then that would have been okay. I consider the measurement of that okay. What I don't consider okay is that there was no analysis as to why it had failed and no plan to fix it. So the next person that gets up here and presents like that is going to have a problem. I was the next person up. I was very junior in my career, and I had no plan of attack. And I sat down and, and quickly wrote down three things that I thought I could do uh, over the course of the next week and then the next month um, to work to correct my results. And uh, as I did that, I found over time, over the next month, that I was actually able to correct the measurement. It was the first time it actually occurred to me that my job wasn't to just go through motions, to load a signal, to um, have that signal show up downstream, to explain after the fact what had happened. It was actually to anticipate and control those outcomes. And when I found that I actually could, it was exciting for me. It was, it was a revelation because I really enjoyed the math. I enjoyed the analysis. But the idea that something was being asked of me beyond that, that I actually be able to participate and control the outcomes of the company um, through uh, my own insight, but more importantly, through my influencing and organizing of the thoughts of a cross-functional team was amazing. And as I went forward on that on, on that journey and 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 found you know more and more leadership opportunity in that domain, um, it was amazing. And it connected me back to many ideas. You know, as I talk about the various different books you read and you go through different economic theory, but you start to read and, and understand that there's a community of people sharing around these ideas. And with my peers and and, and the rest of the team, and as ideas were coming up in the valley, and you know, you're training in things like Apex and other you know and, and just internal discussion on how to think about creating virtual min-maxes. I mean, just the constant idea sharing that was going on. Uh, I learned a lot and I enjoyed the community. I enjoyed the leadership aspects. I enjoyed, you know, turning systems of human behavior into analysis and outcomes. That was amazing. That's a powerful story. That's what I call a life-centering, life-forming story. That moment where you face that challenge and you're able to find a way to address and meet that challenge and as a result of that, it, it becomes um, a, a self-directing moment because you're actually setting in, in motion your, your life, your professional career, your, your pattern of thought. That, that's powerful. That's beautiful. Who else would you say influenced you as a leader? You know, I've had, uh, I've had a run of really good leadership um, throughout my time at, at Cisco. I've... Um, I've learned personally from at least a dozen different leaders on really a variety of things. I think that um, the analytical work, once that ignited in my head, I really, you know, I, I found a lot of inspiration from 
uh, from peers and, and from uh, reading itself. But I would say during most of my time at Cisco, what I was learning from my leadership as I evolved as a manager was how to be a servant leader. Um, and in analysis, it's a really interesting thing because in, in a lot of ways, just like accounting or law or other functions, it's very hard to extract the work from the person. Mm. Uh, it isn't about resource investment or the size of a factory or the amount of, you know, the amount of fixed capital that you invest. It really is coming from the people themselves. And there's no way to develop tools that, that get around that. The analysis and the work product comes from them in the way it would any other partnership model. And the servant leadership that I learned from, and I could think of at least a dozen leaders as I, as I walked it, it really defined how I thought about it. From the earliest leaders at a, at a very senior level, I won't name by name, but um, they, they, their ability to internalize bad news and to have that be a learning moment for you, even if it was personally heavily impacting them, their ability to internalize that stress, I think, was extremely important. I remember one of my um, first leaders I'm describing as somebody that could put your head through a brick wall and you could be happy about it. Uh, <laughs> I took a, I took a lot away from that individual. He, uh, he is very much able to center my my thinking about how to think about the teams that I was facilitating and and uh, and drawing things from, and how not to pass on my sort of my anxiety or even at, at times rage when things go wrong, but to remember that 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 team's performance comes from you being able to accept both good and bad news equally and and be that servant leader on helping the best out of them. What are some of the other leadership qualities or leadership insights and learning that you have acquired, especially in leading teams through times of stress, in changing market in, uh, environments when the market is going one way and, and then it turns around on you and, and everybody around is very stressed and under pressure, um, when perhaps um, you're failing to deliver what you aspire to deliver, what are some other key learnings about that? So it's interesting when you think about it, when there are times of stress and, and uh, change. Um, I had a leader that what she taught me was directness and, and clarity in what you're communicating to people. So when you go through a stressful time, Everyone knows that there are consequences and that there are risks for everybody in the room involved. Um, when you're going through important transitions as a company, you have to be able to make it clear to people what the transition is, why it has to be done, and what are the potential consequences of it as you go through. And to make that really clear and transparent. You also have to learn how to make those uh, those consequences clearer at each level of what, what that means for the individual. If an individual is failing, that individual needs clarity. They need clarity on what's happening. They need the ability to escape and develop out of that. So you don't, I, I think one of the statements I learned early on was don't bayonet the wounded. Um, your job is to help people develop out of times where they're having personal failure or personal need for transition. Um, and you need to find a way to help develop them out of that, but also to provide clarity um, to, to be able to uh, give people the room to succeed and also the room to fail in a way that still maintains uh, dignity in that in that situation. And I find that that clarity um, for an organization, both on an individual and their personal behavior in, in their personal um, work product in an organization in the same way, when it's achieving or failing, um, to have clarity on where you stand in the current situation and what it takes to get to success as opposed to failure. Uh, and to me, that that clarity and that openness and that trust that you have in people that I can, I can lay that situation out for you as it stands and, uh, and not mask or shield things from you or surprise you, um, I think was extremely important. The beauty in what you're describing is the, the relationship between openness, directness, and clarity of communication to dignity. Well, some sometimes people will have the, the reverse instinct. I should protect the other person, and that way I will help them preserve their dignity. No, it's by being fully transparent and clear and factual with, with care, with consideration, with support, yeah. with coaching. But it's there that you actually lift people up and, and, and offer them the, their sense of uh, greater dignity. 
Yeah, I think it's extremely important, especially when you think about the the servant leadership. I think it's one of the hardest things about um, uh, being a leader and 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 developing an individual and developing an organization is uh, you do need to give them the chance to understand the situation as it is, and it is very easy to shy away from that. What are you working on in yourself at the moment as a leader, as a manager, as a professional? You know, I. It's an interesting one because I, I think it's a part of um, it's a constant part of my journey and it's been a, a, a part of the journey sort of at every step. It just evolves as you go through. Uh, I think that the first time I became a leader of people, that transition from being an individual contributor to being a leader of people is radical. Um, it's radical because you don't you're used to thinking about work product, not the emotions and the lives of the people um, that you're that you're managing. And I think that shift is extremely important. But one of the things I learned early on uh, was that, you know, I almost described to the team is I had to cut off my access to data and had to more or less sort of tie my arms behind my back and make sure that I ask all questions through my team mm. so that I forced the teaching and forced the learning um, in a way that maybe wasn't the most efficient way for me personally but developed a paradigm with my team where, where everything that came out of me came from them. And I think for me on a, on a leadership journey, every layer looks like that, but it's a new challenge. It's almost like you're one day you're walking on the ground and the next day you're walking on stilts. And then you're walking on stilts on top of stilts, on top of stilts, on top of stilts. Yeah. You're so far from the ground and there's so many layers between you and the balancing act between that becomes uh, more intense and your your instinct at times as a leader can be when I'm when I'm afraid or when I think that things could be going wrong in the organization I want to micromanage and go deep and assign accountability and 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 rigor to everything but actually in general what you're what you you should run counter to that instinct and constantly look to draw in the team to draw the excellence out of them, to tie your hands behind your back and, and remember that anything good that comes from you has to come from that extended team. And the, the more that you have leadership layers between you and your teams, the more you have to constantly be conscious of how to do that and, and how to do that even down to the most junior members of the team when you can't have constant one-on-ones or constant dialogue. How do you, how do you propagate that spirit through your management layer and really have that full team reflect um, the the best of what you and what the team have to offer and not the worst or simply only what you have to offer. You know, you over constrain your team. So I think that's the, that's a challenge I work on at each layer. And it's certainly a, a developmental challenge for me now as I look at how do you lay out more in, in, on the extreme end of vision and strategy and not be so involved in the day-to-day execution that you deprive the team of its own creativity. What I hear in this uh, thought process that you offer is the, the self-insight, the self-awareness in terms of when do you actually need to work against your instinct? So many people thrive on following their instincts and there are times to follow your instinct. But what you are describing are those moments where you actually feel pulled in the direction of micromanaging and you have the self-insight, self-awareness to actually resist that pull and know that now you need to work exactly in the opposite direction to facilitate the, the kind of development and, and growth uh, in, in your team. That can only happen if you have that internal dialogue as a leader in terms of what is it that I'm trying to achieve? What is it that I'm trying to achieve in, in the near term, but also in the long term with this group of a team of brilliant people? And how can I best use the crisis of the moment to address the immediate need, but also to use it as a learning opportunity in terms of who can we be tomorrow? Yeah, I think that's extremely important. I, you know, it's one of the things that you talked about, um, you know, as, you, as a leader, you have the power to shape the conversation. And when you rely on your own intuition, I think it's important to use that and you know, use your experience to help shape and open up the conversation. But it's really important that you constantly evaluate and resist your own, you know, they, they call it confirmation bias. Yep. Um, your, your own belief is right and you look for supporting evidence that your belief is right. Uh, a team will quickly realize that you don't value um, their judgment, but they also look to you to spark the insight that it sort of forms like a seed crystal that the rest of the crystal forms around. 
And you really have to dance a, a fine line there as you're trying to figure out how to both encourage the right conversation, but not to over-define it in a way that you're the only one speaking. And uh, that balance is really important to me, but it is it is a very hard one. You've been successful relying on your own intuition. It is extremely challenging to constantly remind yourself um, to, to allow the product to emerge from the team. With all that you know today, Joe, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? Uh, <laughs> so it's interesting when you look back and you, and you think about uh, when you think about where you're at at 25, um, there's a lot uh, of, I think, uh, neuroses that comes from not quite knowing who you are yet. And I think um, one of the things that I would offer uh, of advice to myself when I was starting out is to follow your passions, follow what you're good at in what you're doing, and and really try to be excellent. And as you do that, allow your path to be a little bit more flexible. Mm. Um, I think I heard it, uh, it was at a leadership training recently where they were, they were talking about a... Uh, um, a uh, world famous chefs and how they uh, approach their craft. They said that the worst thing that they can do is to start with a recipe and to go and try to find the ingredients that they need at the store for that recipe, because inevitably what you want is not there. There's going to be ingredients that you're missing. And then you have to go to more and more stores to try to find it. It's actually quite hard to get the job done that way. The better route is to actually look at what's available in your shelf and to start with that to frame what you're going to make out of that and then grab the one or two things you need in order to make that successful and i think for me starting out what would have been more helpful is to realize that you really don't have to you don't have to have a perfect design and you don't have to have a perfect strategy and you don't have to try to execute every mechanical detail to land exactly the way you want What you need to do is actually look around at what's available to you and optimize it. Be an entrepreneur. Take advantage of what you have. Um, look to minimize your, your sort of your downside risk, but really look to, uh, to take advantage of what you have and create an optimal outcome. And had I known that more, I think I would have, uh, I would have approached the earlier stages of my career with a little bit more joy, I think. That's a beautiful metaphor and translated to the personal journey. It, it can offer the idea that most of the time, not everything, but most of the wisdom we need is, is right here, right now, uh, nearby, if we can recognize it. And yeah. uh, that's a powerful message. Yeah. If you were to lose all that you know and keep only two ideas or two capabilities or two practices, what would you keep? <laughs> I think one is uh, it, it's certainly a reinforcement of, of what I just talked through is that your the collective power of your team, even when it doesn't follow your own like your own inner instinct, is usually really powerful. and and what you're able to leverage from them is a lot more than what you can generate internally. Uh, and so I think leveraging the collective power of your team, I think, is extremely important. Um, the second thing that, that I think is really important is understanding who your, um, we almost overuse this metaphor, but who are your customers? Uh, because in, in any environment, even, uh, you know, and I'm very much an, an internally focused uh, um, corporate operative. <laughs> Uh, my, the customer is not a part of my day-to-day -day experience, neither is designing the product per se. Uh, but what I have to do is I have to think of myself as a small business. And I have to think about who it is that I'm cultivating that needs the work product that I do and how to make that my customer successful and make my product exceptional for them. And uh, over time, as I've learned that, of how to, how to think about that, not so much Again, as we talked about earlier, not the rigor of executing what you've been taught you're supposed to do within your function, but how to constantly be attuned to who is using your work product and why and, and how to get better at that, I think it is extremely important. And if I looked at both those things, being attuned to my customer and being attuned to my team, um, I think those are the two things I would rely on more than anything. Fascinating 
answer and, and a fascinating exploration uh, uh, with you today, Joe. So as we bring this to landing, what parting wisdom uh, do you want to offer to people listening to create new futures? Uh, I think uh, we've gone through quite a bit of it uh, uh, today of the, my sort of my baseline uh, philosophy, I guess you'd call it. I think one of the things that's extremely important to me on the on the aspect of the customer itself is to continually push for something that's excellent and that only you can contribute. Um, it, at, at times it's easy, and I watch this through um, uh, athletic teams as I watch a lot of leaders trying to think about how to optimize their sort of their salary and their, you know, their salary cap, their portfolio and optimizing it. In a lot of ways, it's easy to construct a team and easy to execute objectives in sort of a neutral, mediocre way. Um, you can do that with a limited, uh, you know, with the same salaries, the same types of players. There's not much difference between them. It's essentially roughly the same work product. But there's something about pursuing excellence that causes everybody to be better, exceptional, take joy in their work, take pride in what they bring to the table. And to me, the motivating energy that that being excellent brings to a team and brings to a process, I think, is extremely important. Um, there's a life that gets sucked out of an organization when it's okay with mediocrity. And so I think even as I, as I look at it from an analytical standpoint, and I, I will tell you early in my career, people used to say, nobody says they want to be a master scheduler when they grow up. <laughs> I, uh, um, I laugh at that now because I think there was a point in my career where I said, actually, I wanted, I, if I knew now at five what I know now, I would have said I want to be a planner when I grow up. And you have to bring that that urgency and that excellence to whatever it is that you do, whatever is in front of you. You have to really love it and you have to bring life to it. And the most exceptional people I work with that I seek out every day are people that sometimes have tasks that you would think are the most mundane tasks in the world that they perform at an extraordinary level. Um, so I think if I was uh, to give that one uh, parting, uh, parting piece of advice, it would be to try to create something great. That's awesome. The the theme I, I've heard in what you're describing there, you are a scientist or, um, or a mathematician by, by training and by practice, but in your soul, <laughs> you're an artist. You, you're looking after that intangible something else that, that is, is added to the work product, to the performance of the team, to what it is that we, we're looking to create, and, and that's more an art than a science. Yeah, I, I, I think that resonates with me. <laughs> This has been awesome. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Thank you. Here we are. We've landed this Create New Futures journey, and it's your time to move into action, to create your new future. Here are a few steps you can take this week. First, Joe offered that servant leadership requires you to resist at times your instinct. For example... Instead of micromanaging through crisis, build your team by drawing them in and by empowering them. Discover where you can be a servant leader this week by building your people and empowering them through struggle. Second, Joe describes his work as playing a game that he gets to play with people he appreciates and enjoys. There is a sense of liberation and an energy release when you apply yourself to your work through the lens of playing a game. How will you unleash such energy at work? How will you shape the game you play at work this week? Identify one such opportunity and apply yourself so you can learn by practicing. Here is a conversation you can create with your team. Ask them, what is the game we play? And then, how can we play at an even higher level? Third, Joe pointed that to build currency, you need to be transparent, to be a truth teller, and to not be defensive. Masquerading and or justifying and explaining is what we humans do when we feel threatened or at fault. But the teaching from Joe is that by confidently stepping up to take responsibility, And by being analytical to the point of showing where and why your efforts failed, 
by demonstrating that courage, you're actually building currency and influence because you're showing people that they can trust you for your honesty and for your diligent debrief. Where do you have opportunities this week to build currency? How will you practice this kind of radical transparency? A transparency that builds everyone in who we are becoming as a team. There is a profound liberation you experience when you do not need to defend and instead you are showing up data-driven and factual. One more thing. You can reach me directly by phone and on email to explore how we can help you and your team create your new future. See you next time.